Blog Talk Radio. And now on Blog Talk Radio, you're listening to Wine Talk with Stu the Wine Guru. Wine Talk. For today, Coral Springs, Florida, as I always do. Tonight will be my Thanksgiving holiday show. So, to all who celebrate tomorrow, happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. Enjoy, be well, drink well, eat well, and enjoy having your family around you. Anytime during the show at 1-646-381-4860 or email me your questions at info at com. You can also go into the chat room I have set up here on the show page and chat with other wine enthusiasts or tweet me any questions you like to at StuTheWineGuru on Twitter and I'll read them live on the show. I want to say thanks to all the listeners out there for getting the word out about my show. Welcome to all of you listening worldwide. I call that. The power of the people meets the power of the Internet. Now, if you'd like to know more about me, just Google Stu the Wine Guru. You can find the websites, videos, articles, and TV shows I'm currently a part of. Speaking of articles and reviews, I'm writing wine articles and reviews for Yahoo, The Examiner, uh, locally for a magazine called The Parklander. So look for those as well on the Internet. I've also made a Wine 101 video series that on YouTube, my website, just about anywhere on the internet, so check those out. In fact, my latest is Wine of Sarka, and I highlight the Sauvignon Blanc of a fantastic new vintner, Seven Springs, from Hermanus, West Cape Town area, South Africa. So check it out. Hey, this is Sly Stallone. You're listening to Stu the Wine Guru on blogtalkradio.com. When I'm out making action pictures, I'm listening to... Right now, I'm sipping on a nice Tusker Red. No actual celebrities were used in the making of this promo. Only celebrity impersonators. Hey, hi, this is uh, John Ratzenberger. When I'm not doing voiceovers for movies or doing commercials, I'm listening to Stu the Wine Guru. I suggest you do the same. No actual celebrities were used in the making of this promo. Only celebrity impersonators. So tonight I am extremely happy to bring to you a top Napa Valley wine company. Um, and one of the representatives, uh, one of the main key people involved in making this fantastic wine is with us. He's part of a family who has been in the wine business for over 40 years. His grandfather, Lewis, started selling grapes that he grew on his 68-acre ranch to neighboring wineries. And unfortunately, after he passed away, he left the estate to his children and grandchildren, and they produced award-winning Sauvignon Blanc, and the winery was born. The name of the family wine company is Honig. His name is Michael Honig, and he'll be joining us shortly. Of course, the number to call in is 1-646-381-4860, or if you're shy and you prefer the computer, email me your questions for both Michael and I to info at stewthewineguru.com, or... You can tweet like my tweeples do. Their questions to Stu 
As always, I've opened a chat room up for the listeners to go into. In chat, you can ask questions of Michael or myself, and I will check in to the chat room periodically during the show to get answers for you. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Either. Okay, I know I haven't been in a movie in a while. I got it. It's okay. I've embraced it. But when I'm not being either, I'm listening to Stu, the wine guru. Scott, you'll get your turn, okay? (laughs) No actual celebrities were used in the making of this promo. Just celebrity impersonators. Yeah, hi, this is Tony Danza. You listen to Stu the Wine Guru. He's not bad. I listen to him every once in a while. You know, drink a Tuscan Red, try to take down the edge. Pretty good. I like him. Not bad. But first up, I want to thank the listeners who are following me on Twitter. I love social media. I can talk directly to my listeners and my guests alike. I can give updates in real time, and my guests are doing the same to promote the show. So thanks to Twitter and social media. Some show notes. My next TV appearance will air in January. I'll be a guest on the Emmy Award-winning PBS show, Check Please, South Florida. I'll be kicking off its fifth season, so look for that. I've also been asked to be on the hot CNBC World Show wine portfolio with host Jody Ness. Uh, They're taking on the Miami wine and food scene, and I'll be showing them where to go and discussing my radio show and the wine industry. In fact, we just filmed my segment uh, in Miami and South Beach with uh, Chef Adrian, who who will be on my show in December, and Chef Ezio Gamba of Chopinos in the Ritz-Carlton, who was on my show earlier this month. They'll join Jody as well. I had a blast with Jody and producer Kevin Fox on South Beach and shooting all over Miami. So if you want to check out a sneak peek of some pictures from the actual shoot, go to my site, www.stewthewineguru.com. The show will air in January, so check out the Wine Portfolio show and its scheduled local airtimes at the website, www.wineportfolio.com. There will be many more TV appearances, and I'll let you know as they happen. Also, I'll be narrating a promotional digital video for multi-valley wineries, I'll let you know when that's happening. For all of you wanting to know what events I'll be attending so you can meet up with me, like my tweeples do on Twitter, in January, uh, I'll be at see, January I'll be at the um, Key West Food and Wine Festival. Uh, that's January 27th through the 30th. Come meet me there. Come down to South uh, Miami and uh, Key West. February 23rd through 27th, I will be covering the South Beach Wine and Food Festival in its 10th year, a decade I'll be interviewing winemakers, exhibitors, keynote speakers, and even attendees. So, again, come down to Florida when it's nice here and not nice everywhere else, unfortunately, and meet me and say hi. March 18th through the 20th, I'll be at the Boca Bacanal Wine and Food Fest, and that is just the schedule so far. So since I'm a media sponsor for the Key West Food and Wine Festival, I've worked out a deal for my listeners so they can go purchase tickets at a 20% discount. All you have to do is use the discount code STWG, during the checkout process, keep listening in and following me on Twitter for more information. My Twitter handle, of course, Stu the Wine Guru. Remember, if you have questions, I have answers. So call me at 1646-381-4860 or email me at info at stewthewineguru.com or get into the chat room like everyone here is doing tonight. And tweet, you know, give me your questions for my guests. I'll take care of it. I'll immediately ask them and get answers for you. Of course, as I mentioned before, you can go on Twitter tweet your questions. Let me make sure that everyone listening knows the uh, Honig Wine website and can go there for about Michael and Honig Wines. To learn more about Michael Honig and Honig Wines, go to www.honigwine.com, H-O-N-I-G-W-I-N-E.com. You can find out about Michael, the winery, vineyard, history, and of course, hey, buy some wine while you sip some wine, I always say. So without further wait, Let's bring on my guest for tonight, uh, the incredible Michael Honig. Michael, welcome to the show. You there, Michael? Let's see if we got you. You there, Michael? Yes, can you hear me? Oh, now I can. I couldn't before. Yeah, you know hey, why? how you doing? Good, good. I didn't press the right button every <laughs> once in a while in the radio world. It's called just pressing the, radio the button. The radio world's tough, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm telling you, it's that button thing. That's what really you know, kind of ties me up. Those damn buttons, yes. They're always those, always impacting like, life. Those but- 
So lots of stuff. So we're gonna we're gonna start. And 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 forgive me because I'm gonna bounce around between questions that are tweeted, questions that are mine, questions that are coming in. So just bear with me. So I guess what I want to start off is I guess a few questions I have. So Honig Wine started out with your grandfather, Louis. Uh, Correct. Do you remember wine always being around and served with family gatherings? Yes, um, it was something my pe- grandfather was very passionate about. Uh, his career was based in the advertising world, and in the 50s and 60s, he was advertising for some of the top wineries in California at the time and just became passionate about the product and just fell in love with wine, and it was served uh, at most all of our family gatherings. Okay. And so, I mean, I guess what I, I the next question it kind of begs is, what is your first memory with wine? <laughs> well, is it okay if I talk <laughs> okay. about when I was underage? <laughs> my my first you. memory of wine was getting inebriated. There's only tens of thousands. Yeah, inebriated at about 10 years of age on uh, champagne uh, at okay. my friend's home and uh, being very sick for years and years after that. Total Dude. silence. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm not sure. Oh, okay, there's some there's a funny delay, I think. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, so I'm sorry, I should explain that. Yeah, so it was, unfortunately it was a, a, a champagne, which I, to this day, still have a hard time drinking with any enthusiasm. Okay. So that's what it was. I, I, as I mentioned before, I, I kind of like uh, threw in there, it probably was a real special occasion at 10. Um, let's see. Yeah, special so, occasions we had access to the champagne bottles. Exactly. <laughs> I think it's you fill in the blanks, Michael. Yeah. Uh, so, so how did the family make the decision to continue your grandfather's vision and and make wine and try to sell it? What was you know? How did that go about? Give me you know, put me there. Sure. Well, what had happened is my grandfather passed away in the mid seventies, and my mother and father and aunt and uncle had retained the vineyard as a vineyard. They're growing grapes for other wineries in the valley. My grandfather's motivation and reason for originally buying the property was to make wine. So a few years after my grandfather's death in 1980, the four of them decided to make wine in his memory. And our first vintage was the Louis Honig, and at the time was just Sauvignon Blanc. And that was really how it started, is they really wanted to memorialize my grandfather's dream of making wine in the Napa Valley. Gotcha. Well, and you know, and that's a that's a great way of you know memorializing is that uh, is to continue the whole uh, vision. And uh, and I have to say, I don't know if you guys thought that you'd be where you are now, you know, thirty some odd years, twenty some odd years ago. No, I imagine you weren't, weren't thinking, oh yeah, well, this is where we're going to be, and in such a great position with such a great reputation. Not to say you didn't think you'd have a great reputation. Let me let me you know caveat there. I wasn't saying that, but I was saying. You know, you probably didn't think it would. It might think it might go as well as incredible uh, as it has, right? Not at all. I mean, it, it started, and the reason I actually left college a few years after that was because the thing was almost out of business. It was started, um, as I said, by my family, but they were not actively involved. They had hired an individual to get the winery up and running. And kind of the easy part we found out very quickly was making the wine. The most difficult part of our industry is actually selling it. So they ran into a situation after about three years of making Sauvignon Blanc that they were in such financial difficulty, they decided they were actually going to sell the property. And that's when I asked if I could leave school. And as a 21-year-old, you know, I didn't really know anything about wine, didn't understand what we were doing here, did here, here as a business, but I had this great love of our land and knew that if it was sold, we would never have this opportunity uh, to, to kind of bring the family together under this one property my grandfather loved so much. Right. And so, I mean, and that's a, that's a big responsibility. I mean, I, I, 21, 22, you take over management of the winery and the vineyard. Uh, tell my listeners about those early days, what that was like. Oh, it was a real struggle. I mean, I showed up. There was a couple of vintages backed up in a warehouse. Uh, the filing system was a big box that was marked miscellaneous. Uh, we didn't have any idea what was going on. As I said, it was all new to me. Um, I had the great fortune to hire a winemaker, who uh, James Hall, who has gone on to become very successful with his own brand by the name of Patson Hall. Absolutely. And James, uh, when I hired James, I said, look, James, here's the deal. You're going to make the wine and be responsible for that. I'm going to go out in the world and try to sell it. And what I initially did is went to San Francisco and would um, go out in the afternoon, take a little bottle of Sauvignon Blanc in my little bag and go to the, some of the top restaurants and stores around the city and show them my wine, and they would all laugh and say, God, here's the mid-'80s, you're making Sauvignon Blanc, it's a Chardonnay world, you're, you're in Rutherford, so you really should be making Cabernet. You guys are crazy. 
And my message right. to these individuals was, hey, look, you're going to have a one or two Sauvignon Blancs on your list or in your store. Doesn't it make sense to put on someone who's really focusing on that one varietal? And that started slowly resonating with people. And so I would go out and, and do my little sales. I'd go the next morning. I had a 1972 Wagoneer that would hold 42 cases. I would load the cases up in the morning, go do my deliveries in the morning, and then rush home, take a shower over lunch, and do it again. And that this was a real slow build and selling it case by case. That's And you know what? I mean, uh, top winemakers and people that I've actually spoken to over the course of time, who all, all have said, you know, it was one bottle at a time, it was one glass at a time, you know, um, until it took off, you know, and I, I think that's that's uh, a testament to how great a wine company you've built out of it. So, hats you know, off well, in that one. Oh, thank you. No, it's you know, it is. It's been a, a lot of fun. There certainly has been there's there's, there's there's been challenges as we face in all of our lives and all of our careers. Um, but it's very gratifying to to not only have something that we're very proud of and have our name on it, but also to be you know the caretaker for a generation uh, in a family that really is motivated to get this to the next you know generations going forward. Right, absolutely. And and I want to say to you, uh, uh, I have some tweeted questions here I'm going to start going to. And first and foremost, I actually have someone who uh, uh, is with me as a tweet on on Twitter, Dawn Catherine, who uh, had – she's actually in the chat room, but she also tweeted something that she wanted to make a comment about. And I do want to get this out there to you personally. And says, um, it's more of a comment than a question. I want to applaud Koenig. Uh, Honig Vineyards for its sustainability uh, and uh, commitments and being kind to nature. So I mean that's you know it's it's kind of nice people really pick up on that. Well, thank you. That's a very nice compliment and something we are very proud of. It you know it's certainly become more topical in the last you know, ten years or so. Um, fortunately for my family, and I think if you talk to farmers that have been doing this for for a long time, what we have, the value we have, is our land. And right. you can't destroy that, otherwise you're out of business. And it's been wonderful, as I said more recently, talking about the things we've done for years and conveying that message to people. And they taking it upon themselves to do their own things sustainably, be it turn off the lights or drive a smaller car or take the bus. And, uh, you know, the, the wine industry is a great catalyst and a great kind of an opportunity to be the bully pulpit to get this information across. And, uh, and, and ultimately, whether you believe in saving the polar bears or you want to drive your Escalade, ultimately the things we're doing are, I believe, making better wines. So everybody wins. I, I, I agree with you a thousand percent on that. So I'm going to go to some email questions from around the world here that are coming in fast and furious. Uh, one, actually, this one I, I, I got earlier. And this one is from uh, – the first one is from Tim at Seven Springs from Warwick, England, and it says, Hi, Michael. Firstly, I – oh, by the way, I should say that uh, Michael uh, – um, that uh, Tim actually has a vineyard in South Africa, which just put out their first Sauvignon Blanc. So you'll appreciate this question. Okay. Um, it says, uh, Hi, Michael. Firstly, I wish to wish you and everyone listening a happy Thanksgiving course. Um, looking at your wines, it seems you will not have a problem matching a wine with your turkey. I guess your Sauvignon Blanc will, will go well with it and uh, will be a treat. My question is, I see that you ferment some of your Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, best of luck with your wines. And as Stu might have told you, uh, we, we have our first wine this year in South Africa, and it's a Sauvignon Blanc in oak and blend, blended with un, and unoaked. Um, so he just wanted, I guess what he's put, bringing out is, that you ferment some of the Sauvignon Blanc and let me just see, I may have kind of mixed up this question here. Pardon me for a second. Let me just get that right. Um, oh, I see. He says, I, I'm sorry. He says, I see that you ferment some of your Sauvignon Blanc um, and I believe that is a, a good Sauvignon Blanc has aging potential or um, do you think that uh, it's good to put uh, wood, you know, you put it, I guess, put it in wood oak barrels for your Sauvignon Blanc. So do you see that they have um, aging potential as well, Sauvignon Blanc. Yes. Um, it depends on the style of wine that you enjoy. I personally, and I should preface this, we make two Sauvignon Blancs. We have a, what we call the Napa, which is a blend of our property and a few families we work with in the valley. And that's pretty much a non-oak version. There's there's a, uh, no real discernible oak character. Then we also make our Rutherford or our Reserve bottling, which is our estate Sauvignon Blanc. And that wine does see a few 
Munson Oak and is a little richer and fuller in style. Um, so that being said, I personally like and drink more of the Napa because I, I tend to like the freshness and the youthfulness that comes with Sauvignon Blanc. But that being right. said, oak and Sauvignon Blanc is a nice complement to one another. If you look to the white Bordeaux, I mean, there's some great wines from around the world that have great Sauvignon Blancs, I should say, that have wonderful potential and age very, very gracefully. Um, but I think some of it's a personal style. Uh, of, but no, Sauvignon Blanc is great. The challenge we find with Sauvignon Blanc and oak is that Sauvignon Blanc is a light, delicate, aromatic white. Oak is a dominant over-the-top heavy component. So you have right. we find you have to be very careful with the amount of oak you, 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 you put on the Sauvignon Blanc because we don't want to get away from the fact that that's the varietal. And we find if you put too much oak, it just becomes just a big, oaky, white wine, and you lose the distinctiveness of the grape. So that's been our challenge always is to, to add an oak, but to have, it as a, a, I'm sorry, to have it as a component versus have it overpowering the wine. Yeah. I you just for a second, but I just was letting you know, but you get back. You're fine. Um, so the next one is from Quanto Vino from Rome, Italy, and it says, Stu, your show is molto bene. I listen in every week, and your guests are superb. Let me ask Michael if he thinks that as a wine company, you need to have a wide range of wines or a few wines that you make really well. That's a good question. Yeah. Uh, I use an analogy, and hopefully this will translate to the Italian market, a shotgun versus a bullet. There are a number of wine companies that have been very successful at being all things to all people. Uh, right. We are more of a bullet in the sense we're very focused, and I personally believe it's better for a multitude of reasons, from the grape growing, from the winemaking, and to the marketing, to focus, in the case of Honig, on one or two items, and really focus on what I believe works in your neighborhood. Um, and I'll use the French as an example. Is you know, in, in, in Bordeaux, they don't grow Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. They grow you right. know, Bordeaux varietals. And the same in Burgundy, they don't grow Bordeaux varietals. And I think, again, it's really important, I think, the world now, is, as we get smaller and, and the businesses are di more difficult, that you need to be known for one or two things, and that's where you can survive the long term. And that's, how, that's what we've been elected to do. And uh, you'll never see a Chardonnay from Honig. You'll never see a Zinfandel. You'll never see a second label. You'll never see one of these cute little critter wines. I mean, our focus is making two varietals and making them as best as we can every year. Because, as you know, you only get one crack at this a year in terms of you know, right. harvest. So you better, be, you better be very focused on what you're doing and not try to divide <laughs> and conquer. No, I think that answers it perfectly. I think that, yeah. I think, uh, that translates in any language. Yeah, um, I think so. <laughs> I think it does. So, the, so yeah. the next one, Michael, is from Ala642 from Sao Paulo, Brazil. And it says, Stu, I love this show. So entertaining and informative at time. So when are you coming to Brazil? I want to make sure my friends and I come to see you. Okay, well, that's, I'll let you guys know. Don't worry. My question for Michael is, how important and what percentage makes up the international sales of your wine? And then it says, obrigado, Stu. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, you know, as an, we we want to be known um, as an international brand. I mean, our long-term goal is that. I think you have to be. I don't think you can rely on your domestic market any longer. The the world's too small for that. Um, so it's a market we've actually. My wife Stephanie has started uh, in January of this year, devoting a lot of her time to our international business. So presently, right. it's uh, close to about two percent of our sales. My long-term goal in the next ten years, I would hope that we get to about 10% of our sales being international. Um, and I think if you look at most Napa wineries that have been doing international and doing it successfully are usually about 5 to 10% of their sales. Right. Well, yeah, and, 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 and that's a pretty incredible jump um, that you're looking to make within the next uh few years so that's uh yeah no it um, is it's, it's something we're very yeah, but again my wife's very very talented and she's very competent and i think i think where we have, are, are going to be successful not only you know based on the currency and all the things that, that factor in on terms of business but again we 
have a reputation is a more affordable wine in the context of Napa Valley. And Napa Valley has an amazing reputation around the world, but one of the criticisms has been is that our wines are very expensive compared to wines of Italy or Bordeaux or South Africa in their home countries. So we've been able to be uh, a little more successful, I think, because we come in with these two varietals that have gotten wonderful national accolades, and they're not as expensive as people would anticipate from other Napa producers. Right. Yeah, and you know that's, and I think that's what it comes down to. You have to do it, do it right, uh, and 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 make it marketable uh, at the right price to the right people. Because yeah. you know it doesn't make a difference if you make twenty different wines, um, if they're all over the map as far as the price, and not everybody is uh, is willing to buy it. You're you're out you're out of luck. No one's going to find you. So no, exactly. Um, and, and there's kind of like Brazil. I mean, Brazil is a company, a country we have right now. A, a new importer that's interesting uh, in bringing us uh, into that market. Uh, Colombia is another market. My wife's Argentinian. Uh, I doubt we'll be selling wine in, Argen- in Argentina anytime soon. But where we're seeing a lot of growth is Asia. Um, there's a huge interest not only in just in China, but in Singapore and Taiwan and South Korea, and Macau, and Hong Kong, and, and, and Japan. So we see a lot of developing up markets in, those, in that part of the world as well. And you know why I've, I've noticed, and I've done a lot of research on this, and the reason being is, is that there's people are becoming so quickly knowledgeable of wine varietals in the United States, and uh, good wine versus not as good wine, and I'll put it that way because I really don't think, you know, there's, I mean, there's there's a very small percentage of really bad wine here in the United right. States, I have to say. Um, but I think people are becoming very quickly astute and keen at figuring out what's good wine and, and, and the desire to have it. And I think that's why that's fueling the Asian market. And uh, it's going to be very, you know, it's I, I don't know where I read. I just heard recently. It's like we're number like 17 in consumption on or 27 in consumption in the world. And I think Asia is is up there, like in three, in two, and three. It's amazing. It's amazing. Actually, amazing. You know. And, well, yeah. I mean, look at the just, questions we've been. I mean, the questions today have been from Italy, Brazil, uh, England, or based in South Africa. I mean, you know, Ken, the the, the world's yeah. small. And you're right. I mean, people Absolutely. are dying and interested, and there's great knowledge on the internet, or um, or in other ways. And 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 it's uh, it's great. It's really wonderful. Republican. And it says, right. hey, Stu. Yeah, okay. So the next one, the next question is from Carlos N. Wine from Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. And it says, hey, Stu, we really enjoy your show here in Dominican Republic. My friends and I listen to you and your guests and learn a lot. Uh, a question for, see, it says, a question for Michael is, how do you decide what varietal to plant and what is uh, by sales your biggest seller? Uh, well, our biggest seller is Sauvignon Blanc. That's what we started right. with initially. It, it hits a price point around the world where people can use it by the glass or as a, as a feature item. Our Cabernet is very successful, but again, it's, a, it's the price point. It's a little. It's like a pyramid. There's, you know, the prices are as you go up the pyramid, or if that's price categories, there's less and re- less real estate as you go near the top. So there's just fewer buyers of a more expensive cap. Um, but so the Sauvignon Blancs are a bigger, bigger item. The reason we focus on those two varietals is where we are in Napa Valley, Rutherford is, is world-renowned and probably some of the best-growing area for Cabernet Sauvignon. Sauvignon Blanc is actually related to Cabernet Sauvignon. So Sauvignon Blanc, which is a white grape, and Cabernet Franc, which is a red grape, were, were crossed together in France. I mean, this goes back hundreds of years. And the outcome was Cabernet Sauvignon. So there's a parent-child relationship between those two varietals. So when we were looking to grow grapes, you know, going back you know, decades, the decision was, well, those are the two varietals that are going to grow the best here. This is a warmer climate. It's not like the southern part of Napa where you have a little bit more influence from the Pacific Ocean and it's a little cooler. This is a little warmer climate. So those are the two varietals that are really grow the best here. And that's, that's a, right. why we elected to focus on those not only as grape growers but as a winemaking. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the next one is from Rosas Bambinas from La Paz, Bolivia, and it says, Stu, this is a great find for me and my wine-drinking friends, all of them. I like that. Um, My question from Michael is, how do you decide where to put your marketing dollars? 
with so many choices, social media, print, and radio. Thank you. That's a good question. Thank you, Rosas Bambinas from La Paz, Bolivia. Yeah, um, you know, we're, we're in a size that we really don't advertise in the tr- traditional sense. We don't put ads in publications. We don't put TV programs together. What we do in most of our social media, not only do we have Twitter and Facebook and, and, and the website, but we have these very amusing, and actually if you go online to the to the, the site you mentioned, Stu, honegwine.com, you'll see we have these very clever postcards that we started doing 15 years ago, which are people in the winery, we come up with different ideas or we spoof different things that are topical at the time, be it a Charlie's Angels movie or the iPad or Calvin Klein, and we use those as a way to kind of engage our customers. And so we send, I don't know, 20,000 of those out every time we do one, and that we find is a very effective way to market and promote our wine at a relatively low cost. And that's something, again, we've we think is really a, a more appropriate way to market a, a winery of our size and of our, 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 our demographic. We have, and they're phenomenal. They're very, very creative, extremely creative. Uh, you do a great job with that. Um, in fact, I did the, I checked out the behind-the-scenes video that you had oh, made yeah. for uh, – <laughs> The most recent one, it was great. It was yeah. hysterical, you know. Yeah. All of and, and I have to tell you, all those people in the cards are all employees. We don't, I mean, we, there's obviously no right. actors or anything, but everyone, so we've it's become this great team-building exercise. It's a lot of fun, and, and they've evolved. I mean, yeah, I mean, we, when we used to go from, you know, having someone with an Instamatic camera uh, to now we have, you know, we do videos of, the, you know, kind of a, a spinal tap spoof on the making yeah. of the postcard, so. Canada tweeted, how does being a green winery impact economics? And then she follows with, realistically, what incentive is there for others to follow? Uh, well, uh, one is if we destroy our land, we're out of business, so that's a pretty big in, in, in impact. Um, but I can make the argument, in most everything we do, if you look at it, if it's a green, sustainable, whatever terminology you want to use, that it actually costs us less in the long run. Uh, I'll give an example of solar. We decided to put a, a solar installation in about five years ago. Very expensive to put in. But after about 10 years, we will actually have free power. And the solar panels themselves are warranted for 25 years. So a very long economic life. The cost is pretty uh, – the upfront cost is, is pretty expensive. But, again, in 10 years we'll have that paid off. Another 15, 20 years of life, that's a great incentive. Uh, the vineyards, if I can right now um, have a vine that's healthier and lives longer, maybe outperforms a, a, a vine uh, that's grown by one of my neighbors who's using a lot more chemicals, and that vine lives, our vine lives another five or ten years, again, a huge economic benefit. Um, glass, we, right now we're using, or we have been, but we use glass, it's, a, it's called a lightweight glass. It's got a lot of recycled content, but it's also about 15% lighter. And why that matters is, one, glass requires a huge amount of energy to produce. Also, it gets shipped, so there's a lot of weight. So the less production cost, the better it is for society, less energy being used, and we pay about 15% less for the bottles. You, in whatever country you live in and see our bottles, would never know the difference. It looks exactly like a traditional bottle. It just happens to be 15% lighter. So, again, from an environmental standpoint, you win. From an economic standpoint, I win. So we both win. So right, I, I, and again, that, that's right. Yeah, and again, I think it's hard to make the argument that these things cost us more, either short term or long term. And that's you know, again, we we do it because we care and we we think it's important, but we also do it because the, the economics dictate this is a better way to go. Right, I, and I think it's fantastic. And and um, I've got a, a question from the chat room. It says uh, from Wine Societies. It says also curious if you've collaborated with John Williams from Frogsleep. Uh, in that movement, yeah, John's our neighbor, <laughs> one of our neighbors. Yeah, John's great. I mean, John has a lot of great ideas. He's a fun guy to work with. We uh, literally, he's the closest. Why? I mean, it's Frog's Leap and Camus and Quintessa and BV are all surrounding us, and um, yeah, we, we've we've done a lot of things together. And uh, and uh, what's what's wonderful about our community, the community of Napa Valley, is there's an amazing amount of sharing. 
I talk to my friends that are in other businesses, and they cannot believe the fact that you know John Williams and I, and you know the the, the Augustine Hunea Chuck and Wagner. Tessa, or Chuck Wagner sit down and have discussions. Or and this happened a few years ago. John had a problem where they had an issue; they couldn't crush uh, some grapes one day. We had capacity. We brought the grapes over and did it for them. I mean, again, there's a lot of sharing, not only of ideas but of equipment and anything that we can help one another. And and to answer your question, no, John is, is he's been a leader in this for years. He's he's gotten people really thinking about it. He went a different tact in that he is went kind of uh, he's more involved with the organic certification system. I've gone a different right. way and kind of gone more to the sustainable because of just different philosophies. But again, we're getting to the same point at the end. We're both making wines that have great quality, that are sustainable or organic, that are doing right by the environment, and everybody right. wins. And I have to say, um, uh, the one, he's he he's a great guest. I've had him on as well, and uh, he's outstanding. He'd be just <laughs> he's great to talk yeah. to as well. No, he's so, fun. He's a lot of fun. He's a great guy to have a beer with. Oh wow! I can imagine because just in yeah. talking with him, I, I I got that from him. I got that in the hour that I talked with him that he'd be a great guy to hang out with and and have a beer with. Um, yeah. So moving on to another couple of tweeted questions here. Vintage tweets from North Idaho. Stu, ask Michael why only the Sauvignons. Is the Rutherford Sauvignon Blanc only stainless, or does it have some uh, neutral oak also? Well, the Napa Sauvignon Blanc is all stainless, but there is some new neutral oak tanks that we use. So that wine has no discernible oak character. It just has a lot of freshness, kind of nice tropical notes. The Rutherford, our reserve bottling, does have some oak, about 25% uh, new barrels. It's in oak for a few months. But as I said earlier, oak and Sauvignon Blanc is a very difficult combination sometimes because you don't want to have too much oak. At least that's our belief. You don't want to have the oak dominate the Sauvignon Blanc. You want the oak to be uh, a component like you would in a recipe. It's the same idea as if you have a recipe that you've added too much salt. It's pretty obvious there's too much salt in the dish. Same thing with if you have too much oak in Sauvignon Blanc, it's pretty well known because all you smell or taste is oak. So we use it, but right. we use it very, very, very sparingly. No, and, and, and you're right. I mean, because it's, you know, it's almost like when you think of uh, like a fume, where you do half oak and half stainless. You know, to kind of accomplish that, keep that the the structure and and keep the the natural fruit. You know, when you're when you're producing it. So, yeah. um, so Dean's guide from San Rafael, uh, California, tweeted a couple questions here. So I'm going to just field them to you. Uh, thoughts on Cosentino foreclosure, possible Foley purchase of winery. What's the question? <laughs> the thoughts on it went bankrupt. Not a good idea. <laughs> Try to stay in business. Oh, um, you know what? We, you, you cut out for a second. Could you? Could you? Oh yeah, I, that I again? Think, I'm not sure what the question was there, um, but it's not a good idea to go bankrupt. Uh, it's not a, not a right. good idea to take on too much debt in our business. I think again, I'm not that familiar with the. The, the specifics of that business. I think Cosentino probably got in a little challenge because they, I think, started trying to be too many things to all, too many people. And if they had right. high end, low end, different labels, and I think it became very difficult for them to maintain that business. Um, but and whether Bob Foley, uh, I think, uh, or steps in and buys it, I, again, I don't know the economics or if it makes any sense. The one thing that Cosentino or that facility has going for it is a great 29. Uh, Highway 29 address. Um, oh, that sure. might be something Absolutely. anyone would want to anyone would want to acquire. But again, not knowing the the situation and what type of uh, legal issues that that brand is facing, it, it's hard to know who's going to step in and buy it. Well, there you go, Dean's Guide. <laughs> you know, there's, there's there's your answer. On uh, he also has another question: Will Syrah come back? Well, if you if you planted it in the last few years, you goddamn hope so. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's the problem with a lot of these varietals, and, and Syrah obviously has a world-renowned reputation, but if you look at the consumption for the last five or six years ago, there was an uptick. Well, what happens is supply and demand. All of a sudden, growers see, oh, my God, Syrah is growing. We need more Syrah to the point where it gets overplanted. And it happened with Merlot. It happened with Pinot Noir. Uh, it could happen with Sauvignon Blanc. And I think that's where Syrah is right now. Is there's some great fried Syrahs out there. I mean, there are there's a there's a core group of Syrah drinkers, kind of like maybe Zinfandel drinkers that love it, but it hasn't right. really 
broken into the mainstream, and unfortunately, there's just too much of it planted. So I think until it gets more in balance, it's going to be a hard varietal because no one seems to be making much money on it, and no one seems, with a few exceptions, been able to really break through the pack and become you know, one of the true leaders of California Syrah. Right. I know... That particular uh, maker of Syrah, um, but you know, if you look at it, it's really it tends to uh, blending grape. You know, I mean, if you think about it, there's a, many of the of, of some of the great blends and meritages that have been made. Uh, you know, have a good percentage of Syrah in it. So it's just you know, I mean, at least it has its uh, its purpose if you look at it that way. Sure, um, and, and there's certainly people that enjoy it. It's just, again, I think there's too much of it right now, and probably too much of it planted in inappropriate areas. So you're right. getting these, these huge variations in quality, and the market has a hard time understanding what Syrah is because it's all over the map. Yes. So, so D-Guide has one more question, which says, will cabs suffer in the 10, the, the year, the uh, 2010 vintage? You know, it really depends on where you grow your grapes. Um, mm-hmm. I, 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 Kristen, our winemaker, Kristen Belair, uh, is very, very excited, uh, at least after harvest. So she was not so excited in the spring and the, in the summer this year. But the, the quality that we're seeing in the tanks right now and things that are going down a barrel is exceptional. Now, that is where we are in Rutherford. I think the people on the hillsides and certain other parts of California are going to have a really difficult time. It was a tough growing year, didn't get a lot of ripeness, didn't get as much sun as you typically want for Cabernet in some, in some areas. So um, I think I'll, I'll use a baseball analogy. Some people are going to just hit doubles and, and singles or ground out, and there's going to be some home runs. We're really optimistic uh, because stylistically, we've never tried to go for that over-the-top high alcohol. You know, hit, hit, you know, try to make the biggest, baddest cabernet on the block. Our wines are really about elegance and, fernet, and finesse. So we feel a vintage like this is right, you know, right down where we want to go. But in general, Absolutely. I think it's going to be a very, very difficult time for people. And I think you're going to have to really be cautious when you look for the 2010s, uh, and you know. See, you know, well, where is the fruit grown? Who's the producer? Uh, and and buy a bottle before you commit to a case. Sure, sure. No, no, no. Very good, uh, very sage advice. Uh, Dawn Catherine, also again, as I mentioned earlier, who had asked questions or made the comment, is actually has a uh, a couple from the chat room, which states, "Who comes up with your wine label ideas?" She says, "I love all of them, especially Sauvignon Blanc." And what's Michael's thoughts on the cork debates? So you've got a couple of questions there. Sure. Well, the wine labels, we originally used a, uh, a label designer by the name of Chuck House who came up with that three-dimensional aspect I think that John's referring to on our Sauvignon Blanc where we basically print on the inside of the back label. So you look through the bottle and you see this really lovely uh, artist rendering of what the property looks like, and there's some die cuts on the front and the back of the label to represent the hills on either side of us. Um, so that's the label, and it, again, it, it, the idea was we wanted someone to feel like, even though they've not visited Honig or have never been to the Napa Valley, that when they buy a bottle of our wine and they put it on their table or they're at dinner, that they can feel like they're in the Napa Valley as they drink it. So that's where that came from initially, and we've tweaked it and, and kind of continue to improve it. Um, what was the other question? <laughs> Uh, the cork debates. Uh, oh, cork, cork, cork versus uh, cork. yeah. Um, you know, it, it, you know, we we've tried the Stelvins or the the twist offs. Um, we have yeah. some technical issues with that in terms of some winemaking challenges. In terms of trying to, you have to change some SO2s to 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 allow for the way that those seal. The other problem, and I use it, you know, think of a beer can, is that beer cans or any type of soda pop cans have a lot of strength, you know, up and down but you can crunch them very easily, as we all have. Same thing with those little Stelvins, is any type of uh, damage or dings or hits to the side can compromise that seal. So we're, we, we've elected, after doing some trials, not to go down that route. Uh, what we do spend a lot of time, and we actually reject a lot of cork, is we test every bag, and corks come in bags of 10,000 units per bag. So we have a, a, an agreement with our cork suppliers that we will test every bag, and we reject, reject quite a few. And the way we test is we take a little baby jars of uh, uh, vodka, of a neutral spirit, we put a 
a cork in it. We let it soak for 24 or 48 hours, and then we go through and smell all those different uh, uh, baby food jars. And if anyone remembers what vodka smells like, it's pretty much neutral. So when you, you smell the vodka, if you smell any off aromas, you know there's a problem with that cork, and then you go back to the bag it came out of and reject it. So that's how we've really been able to be successful with and not have a huge quirky problem as, as some of our peers do. The other thing we've done in, is, is, a, is a kind of a middle ground is that our Napa Sauvignon Blanc, we use a, a synthetic product called, uh, it's, well, the, the manufacturer is a, a Noma cork out of North Carolina. And the reason we like that product is it's, it's a synthetic. It's, uh, it's like a little polymers that make up. It looks like a cork. It comes out like a cork. You can brand it as you could a cork, but it's neutral. And Sauvignon Blanc, is, of all of our wines, is the most susceptible to corkiness or TCA or any off aromas because it's so delicate. So we find sure. that the, the, the Noma Cork is a great product for that one wine because it, it, it doesn't create any corkiness. It's very neutral. But for our wines that have any longevity, like our Cabernet or our Late Harvest Sauvignon Blanc or the Rutherford Sauvignon Blanc, we still believe natural cork is the best closure. And even though you can have some quirkiness issues, by doing the trials that we do and the, the amount of time we spend on it, we feel, and this is based because we open a lot of bottles, that we have a very, very low instance of quirkiness. Um, so, right. but, but again, to answer the real question, we don't like Stelvins. We think there's some technical challenges. And it's nothing about marketing. I mean, I have my own personal views, whether that matters or not. But from a quality and a production standpoint, we really think there's some issues that we would just rather stay away from. Gotcha. You know, I, I was just um, I, and on the the um, the Selvin caps uh, for a second. One more. Um, I was actually we were just filming. You know, the wine portfolio. Wine portfolio round, and uh, you know, about that. And, and at dinner, we actually started talking about that. And something came up, and an idea I th I thought about this way. If you look at the Stelvin uh, screw caps, they've been around on scotch and other, um, you know, spirits that have been around, you know, for many, many, many years. And although you don't have to age um, scotch in the sense that it's, it's aged and then put into the bottle and then that's it, it doesn't age anymore. But think about the fact that it holds up pretty well over the course that that plastic that's on the inside. It doesn't really deteriorate. And my thought was in aging wine that, um, you know, although the verdict's not really out yet, at least you can look at the fact that those Selvin caps have been around uh, a lot longer in the spirit world than in the wine world. So it, it has definitely proven itself in that as far as deterioration goes um, and, and keeping uh, air in, uh, they seem to do okay. And I, and I think yeah, that the although the verdict's not... Yeah, when the seal's not compromised, they're fine. And, and, and this is the debate. What I learned years ago, there's a lot of different ways to make wine, and none of them are wrong. Um, we've just elected not to use Stelvin. I mean, a lot of people, and, and if you talk to people in, in New Zealand, they love them. And a lot of the producers right. in California now have gotten behind them. So, again, it's it's a really more – it's, it's um, I think it's, a, it's particular to the winery and, and the, kind of their views. And, again, I, they do work well. They certainly work well in, in other spirits. It's just we've elected not to use them, but that doesn't mean they're bad or wrong right. or, you know, some people right. love no, them. No. I mean, and if you like to, if and, you know, the other thing was, oh, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say right, real quickly, the other thing was, uh, which my wife has actually made a good point before, and that is uh, the romance of the cork uh, in that when you go to, um, you know, remove it versus, okay, here's your incredible wine, crack, <laughs> and then yeah. pouring it out. <laughs> And the experience behind it versus, you know, turning a screw cap and opening it up. So, you know, I'm sure we could we could debate this and go back and forth. Not that we're debating it because I think we kind of agree, but I, I yeah. think, you know, there's we could go on for hours and days and weeks. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. It's, uh, you know, it's like Stelvin Blanc. Some people like Stelvin Blanc. Some people like Chardonnay. Some people like Cork. Some people like Stelvin. It's, you know, whatever right. works for you is what works is how I'm happy with. Exactly. Whatever the wine, the best wine is the wine that you're drinking right now. That's the way. That's what I would say. <laughs> Very true. Very true. Right. So, so I have a couple more tweeted questions here. Uh, let's see. Twinkly Red from Texas says, uh, 
what are you drinking for dinner tomorrow? I, I, I kind of have a guess. I think I'm going to be pretty accurate if, if I had to answer that one. And what fun holiday wines of yours should we bring as a housewarming gift? That's a good question. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I mean, I, well, I, I love Sauvignon Blanc and Turkey, so I, I think we're probably going to be having, if not Honig Sauvignon Blanc, we'll grab the cellar, and I actually, a friend of mine gave me, a Volker Isley gave me one of his bottles of Gemini last night, which is the Semillon-based nice. Sauvignon Blanc, so I think we'll probably open that, too, because Volker's a great guy and love to support my friends. Um a great wine. You know, we have a wine, and I think she's in Texas. It actually is just going into Texas. It's a late harvest Botrytis Sauvignon Blanc. And the reason I mention it is, again, it's not available in, in, in many of our markets. It is available online, and you can always order it probably from right. some of your local merchants. Um, but the reason I love that wine is not only because of its exclusivity and its limited production, but sauternes or dessert wines, I think, are just wonderful around the holidays. And this particular wine has is 100% botrytis, so it's been on the vine uh, for a long, long time. The, the bricks got up to about 40 degrees, so very, very ripe when we harvested the fruit. But what's really different and different from, say, Ikem, which is also a sauterne or uh, with botrytis, is ours is 100% Sauvignon Blanc, where most of the dessert wines are more Semillon-based. Semillon, a white varietal, has very, very little acid or low acid. So you typically with those wines find, you know, the richness from the, the botrytis, but they're very cloying and syrupy and kind of viscousy and coat your mouth with sugar. Ours has the botrytis character, but because it's Sauvignon Blanc, which is a much higher acid varietal, it's got this liveliness that you just typically don't find in a dessert wine. And as I said, it's just beautiful. It's got this kind of honeyed apricot character, and it's just, I mean, it's dessert in a glass. But I think, again, from, with the holidays coming up, and that's what people are thinking about, to me that's something it's great, and you know you can also do like belly shots out of it, if, you know belly button shots if you don't want to drink it as dessert. So, kind of, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> belly digress. <laughs> That's great, Michael. I love that. Sorry, digressing. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. Anything okay, goes it. on this show. Oh, I'm glad. It's not, I'm glad. It's, 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 it's not a G-rated show, huh? <laughs> no, it isn't, and we and we and we don't judge. Good. We do not judge the show. And, they can, and if you do, I have a, you know that's I have a, a way of uh, dealing with that too. Um, good, good, I'm glad. So, so Nick Tex from I believe Texas tweeted, "Where do you see the state of Sauvignon Blanc in Napa five years from now?" That's his first part of his question. Mm -hmm. uh, it's growing. You know, I, I wouldn't have said 20 years ago. I thought it was we, the demise of Sauvignon Blanc was just around the corner. And what I've seen is, and this goes to, to what the industry has become is people are starting to realize that certain varietals grow in certain areas. And although Napa makes some great Chardonnay, they don't grow great Chardonnay, with, with a few exceptions, upper in the upper valley of Napa Valley, in my area. Right. What they do find, though, is Sauvignon Blanc grows very, very well. So you've got a, a varietal that grows well in certain parts of the, the area, and at the same time you've got a consumer who's more and more interested in Sauvignon Blanc. So I see great things happening. I mean, I mean, we've obviously been very successful with the varietal, but you have people like uh, Heights has a Sauvignon Blanc out now uh, the last year or so. You have a number of uh, producers, both new and old producers, that are starting to make Sauvignon Blanc as a varietal because I think they also see the value of that grape in our, in our area. So I think it's, it's going to only grow. Right. Well, and and, and uh, the next part of his question was, how has its production evolved since the 80s? But I think you kind of answered that. Um, yeah. And then his it's last like, question, yeah. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just saying, yeah, from a production standpoint or acreage, it has grown, yes. Right. And then his last question was, does Honig have a long-term commitment with Bartolucci Vineyard? Oh, yes. The Bartoluccis, who we've been working with now since uh, 96, uh, are, are almost like family. We, we make, uh, well, we buy a lot of their grapes that we blend with the Napa Sauvignon Blanc and the Napa Cab, but we also, uh, a few years ago, started making a Bartolucci single vineyard Cabernet from their property on Dean York Lane in St. Helena. And um, they're an amazing family. Uh, they're just, uh, I mean, when I say they're farmers, they farm their vineyard, they deliver their own grapes, they drive their own equipment. They are really what Napa was 100 years ago. And it's just a, a fabulous family. And no, I see no, uh, we have no reason to, to, to break up our partnership. And I think the Barlucci's would say the same, um, that we're all in this together right. and uh, they like working with us and we like working with them and no reason to change. 
Right. And okay, so and I'm going to ask it. These are a couple of questions that I have. So uh, <laughs> you'll enjoy this. Do you foresee your daughters getting involved as you did in the family business? You know, yeah, I would hope so. I mean, I, I don't know why they wouldn't. I mean, it's a great life. It's it's a family business. I mean, we're going to encourage him. My three-and-a-half-year-old already loves to drink to the point where sometimes we can't get the glass out of her hand. Um, and, I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to force it on anyone, but I certainly think there's a huge – there's going to be a big interest in it, and 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 they already travel. They again, we we spend a lot of time with our kids on the road, and although they're very young, I think they're going to have a real interest, in, and that's my hope that if they don't, that some of my uh, nephews and nieces uh, get involved as well. Right. So, uh, tell me how you got involved with the Wine Institute and the role that you play in it. Um, I was uh, elected to the board to the Wine Institute. Uh, I can't remember how many years many years ago, and then at the time, our executive director John DeLuca asked me to chair a commission about ten years ago that actually was what ultimately wrote a, a, a 500-page manual about how to farm and make wine sustainably. Uh, so it was just something I got interested in. You know, I think as a family, we've always been very civic-minded and, and philanthropic, and I think you know, again, I have to run my business, I have to watch out for my family, but I also think it's important to help. You know, in that case, the Wine Institute, you know, promote, help promote the California Wine Institute and work on public policy and make sure that, you know, we're not getting taxed out of business or that we're doing the right things by our our, our, our staff and, you know, creating a great image from for our wines around the world. So, you know, that's how it came about. I just was very interested in, in promoting the industry as well as my own family's business. Gotcha. So we have a couple minutes left, so here's a couple of questions I'm going to ask you. Uh, first and foremost, are there any upcoming events at the Vineyard or the Winery that you would like to tell my listeners about and get that word out there about it? Um, oh, I should have looked on my website. Um, I know, well, you know, we just did last weekend, I, I, I wish we'd done this weekend, we just did a great blending seminar where Kristen and her assistant, uh, Brett, uh, brought in some bulk wines, and I think we had 50 people that came in, and we basically blended their own bottles of wine, and they took their with them. So I think we, with the holidays coming, I know we'll have something in the spring. I think uh, the next thing we're doing is like a lobster feed uh, in the early spring. Um, but I would encourage people, again, to go to honigwine.com, and if it's not there, to email uh, well, my email's there, or, or my cousin Regina's, and we can put you on the list for any future events that are coming down the road. Absolutely. Well, listen, I want to thank you personally. I think that uh, you know this was really enjoyable. Uh, you're a great guest. I'd like to have there's like a million other questions I have. I'd like to ask. You about. Trying to cut out there for a sec. Yeah, I'm sorry. Did you have? You said you were going to ask one last question. I didn't hear. Yes. Okay. So the one thing I was I I, I was going to say was I want I actually we only had a couple minutes left, so I wanted to thank you for oh, for being on the show. You were a fantastic guest, really fantastic guest. And uh, there's a million other questions I was going to say that I have, so I'm going to have to ask you to come on again on the show in the in the future, and uh, and we'll talk again, and we'll and we'll questions about uh, the winery, and the vineyard, and uh, and the wine as well. Well, I love to, and it's great to to be able to talk to the world as we have this afternoon. Um, it's normally, you know, I talk to a very specific group in San Francisco or Dallas or New York. It's great to get questions from Bolivia and Dominican Republic and South Africa. I mean, it's just very, very fascinating. So, thank you. I really appreciate it. And I hope everyone has a great no, Thanksgiving you. and a happy holiday. Excellent, and to you too and your family. And uh, thanks again, Michael. Have a great okay. holiday. Thank Take you. Care. See you soon. Bye bye. Okay. So that was Michael Honig of Honig Wines. Uh, I want to thank everybody that had called in. I want to thank everybody that tweeted, everyone in the uh, chat room, uh, everyone that emailed their questions. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, I want everyone to have a great holiday um, as well. I want to especially thank Michael Honig for coming on and telling us all about the great wines and the Honig family as well. As I always say, if you have any questions about the show, you can email them to info at stewthewineguru.com, or if you're on Twitter, you can tweet me your questions at stewthewineguru, and I'll read them on air, my guests. You can go to my website at, as well at www.stewthewineguru.com and click the, all the links. Oh, 
it'll be automatically available. Just click on Michael Honig's picture, and it'll automatically come up. As I always say, if it's time to pour the wine, it's time for Stu the Wine Guru. Drink up. Good night. Good wine. Good holidays. Everybody enjoy themselves. Take care. And now on Blog Talk Radio, you're listening to Wine Talk with Stu the Wine Guru.